This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 30, The Shang Dynasty. have a refresher from last week. There were many different cultures that emerged and disappeared during the Neolithic period of China. The most considerable of these were centred around the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. We know that ceramic pottery has a deep history in China and perhaps Chinese cultures were the first to make pottery anywhere in the world. During the 6th millennium BCE, the Hemudu and Majabang cultures emerged around the Lower Yangtze, while the Yangshao culture emerged in the Upper Yellow River region. These were certainly not the only cultures of China, but they were significant ones. They were all skilled agriculturalists and pot makers. Significant advances in textile weaving and building construction can be discovered from this era. Great effort was invested into the pottery creations. Elaborate decorations and depictions were painted onto the surfaces of the pots which would be created from clays of different colours either due to the colour of the clay or the material added to the clay such as charcoal to turn the clay black for example. It is likely that there was a ritual purpose to many of the ceramic creations and a spiritual meaning to the designs featured on them. In the Yangshao culture of the Yellow River, there were significant advances in social hierarchy, as is evident by the burial culture demonstrating significant amounts of grave goods in some of the graves. We can also see an upsurge in silk production, something which will define China's global role in the coming millenniums. These cultures would lead us up to a point in history around 3000 BCE when we can see them diminish in favour of more advanced cultures. The most well-known of Chinese cultures to emerge in around 3000 BCE was the Longshan culture. These later cultures display evidence of an elite class with fortified city centres. We also know that the Longshan honoured the heavenly bodies of the sky with evidence of the construction of a great observatory. After the decline of the Longshan in around 1900 BCE, we see the emergence of a new culture called the Arlito, centred on the Upper Yellow River. Some of the graves of this culture show considerable amounts of precious grave goods which demonstrate that there may have been some incredibly important and highly regarded individuals in society. It would be reasonable to consider there to be a type of royal family headed by an emperor which could validate the presence of the mythological Xia dynasty, the first reported dynasty of China according to traditional scriptures. The second traditional dynasty 
was the Shang Dynasty, which is the subject of this week's episode. We mentioned last week that it was the Tang of Shang who was the first emperor of the Shang Dynasty, and as such, there must be a story behind his accession. Tang would overthrow the Xia Dynasty by destroying the capital city at Fengqiu and becoming the new emperor according to the Chinese doctrine called the Mandate of Heaven, which represents the spiritual nature of the universe, which selected Tang as the rightful ruler, and his success against the Xia would be proof of the doctrine. Jingzhou Shang City Often with ancient stories that have little in the way of written accounts, we have to try and compare mythological stories with the archaeological studies and look for common aspects. Jingzhou Shang City is an archaeological site in the Hunan province of modern China and near to the Yellow River. The fascination with this archaeological site is the presence of city walls that date back to around 1500 BCE. So this is ideal in terms of when historians believe the Shang dynasty was in full swing. There is also evidence of a large number of buildings which have been interpreted as residential buildings in some cases and workshops which specialise in bronze working and ceramics and buildings which are likely to be palaces. The usual method of crammed earth wall building was how these buildings were constructed, which was typical of this period of Chinese history. The quality of rammed earth construction is helpful to historians who wish to date the walls. The site itself has a great number of artefacts and a good degree of evidence of a thriving culture. The artefacts are made from bronze, ceramics and jade. Other artefacts are made from bone and ivory. However, due to the vitrification of kaolin, a much stronger ceramic material which we know today as porcelain was produced. Kaolin was a mineral that could be found within the clays of China, which is why porcelain is associated closely with China, and indeed in some cases actually referred to as China or Fine China. The presence of the walls and the importance of the artefacts have led historians to believe that this site must have been a Shang capital. According to Shang tradition, Zhong Ding, a Shang king, moved his capital city from a city called Ba to a city called Ao. The question that is yet to be answered is whether Zhengzhou Shang City is the same city as the mythological Ba or Ao or whether it is neither. The presence of such fortified rammed earth walls show a progression from the practices of the Longshan culture who had dominated these areas of the Upper Yellow River in centuries gone by. The fact that we are now seeing considerable protective walls points towards a much more hostile local environment 
which would require those societies of the Shang dynasty to have a much more military mindset and maybe even an expansionist mindset to try and subjugate neighbouring territories in order to protect and preserve their own culture, which resembles the mindsets of those competitive societies of the Near East and Ancient Egypt. Territories Other important cities and archaeological sites demonstrate an expansion in Shang influence and territory. The Shang would often move their capital city and subjugate other societies to create vassal states. The lands that the Shang would acquire would help to feed the success of their culture and defend it from many of the hostile societies dotted around the lands. Many captured individuals would be useful slave labour for the captured lands which would be prepared for agricultural use and for the production and construction of military requirements such as weapons and walls. This is not to mention the considerable amounts of loot that could further enhance the Shang treasury. Labour would have also been required for metal mining which would have been vital for the health of the bronze industry. If we take a step back and look at the final result of the size of Zhengzhou Shang city then it would have been constructed over many generations and with the manpower of thousands of men. Its size alone is a testament to how extensive its influence must have been over the surrounding lands. As the Shang influence spread eastwards towards the coastal lands, it would come to dominate the northern plains of modern China. We can see the same developments in city societies in these lands as we have seen in other cultures already. The elite classes such as the ruling royal family protected within the innermost walls of the city. Close to the city centre, we will see the important workshops where the artisans could be found working on precious objects as well as the more practical bronze, ceramic factories and the city storehouses and military centres. The extremities of the cities would be the homes of the common people and the agricultural lands. So stratification would have naturally become more obvious as the capital city became larger and more prosperous. The Shang dynasty would spread down the Yellow River to the historical site of Mount Tai, which has seen human population for many years. It had been populated before the arrival of the Shang, and the Shang would take control of it, and may have even based a capital city there during their period. The site is well known today as one of the most important religious centres of Chinese history. In fact, it could be the case that the Shang brought religious worship to Mount Tai, but we really don't have anything to verify that. Another capital city of the Shang is Yin, further back up river. It was also ultimately the last capital of the Shang dynasty which we'll come back to later, but it was also the site where the oracle bones of the Shang dynasty were discovered, 
the ones that we spoke about during episode 21. The reason why we mentioned these in episode 21 was because the oracle bones were written on with one of the earliest recognisable forms of Chinese writing. So this is quite an important historical cultural aspect of Chinese history. We have evidence of an ancient writing style that has evolved unchallenged to the modern day and we have evidence of spiritual practice in the form of pyromantic divination. Predictions were written on the bones before they were subjected to the heat of a fire and the resultant cracking would represent a spiritual response to the predictions. Bronze working. Bronze working of the Shang dynasty cannot be overlooked. We have seen bronze working elsewhere in the Chalcolithic and ancient world, but the Shang did things differently and to breathtaking effect. We have discovered the lost wax technique of bronze casting, where a wax dummy of the object is created before being melted out of a clay casing, leaving behind a clay mould of the desired end product. Molten bronze would be poured into the void before the mould was broken to reveal the finished bronze object. The Shang would create a new process by which many identical objects could be cast. The technique used is called piece mould casting. This technique would involve the creation of a dummy object in clay which would be fired before being encased in wet clay. The wet clay would form an inverse of the dummy object. The wet clay would then be removed into pieces and these pieces would be fired. After discarding the dummy object we would be left with the pieces which would fit together to create a mould and hence the name piece mould casting. So the molten bronze would be set within the clay mould pieces to create the desired object and this process could be repeated numerous times using the same mould pieces over again. Some of the bronze pieces recovered during this period are wonderful. They range from weapons to practical everyday objects to ceremonial objects and recreations of animals and mythical creatures. The popular opinion among scholars appears to be that the development of bronze working in China was autonomous. So many believe that there was no outside influence and that no one showed the Chinese cultures how to work bronze. However, it is not possible to know this for sure. Many of the ornate vessels that have been recovered from palace sites such as the one at Yin, which we will talk about later on, are believed to have been created for the purpose of containing sacrificial food and drinks, such as grain and wine which relates to some of the practices of other societies, even as far afield as Neolithic Southern Europe, who appeared to be making offerings in the gold mines. So there could have been a common belief among different global societies that the best way to ensure wealth was to make sacrifices and offerings to the deities. 
And was this a natural human emotion or a cultural behaviour that was transmitted from one society to another? In ancient China mythology, a creature called a Taotie is described as one of the four evil creatures of the world. And it is believed that the Taotie is represented by a pair of bulging eyes on the side of many ceremonial vessels. Another food vessel was created in the shape of a tiger protecting a man. And some interpret the frequent portrayal of animals relating to a form of fertility cult. One of the most striking discoveries of Shang bronze are the masks which display very definite and accentuated facial aspects. It is likely to be thanks to the piece mould casting technique that we have so much in the way of ornate bronze work from this period of Chinese history. Bronze item creation could be produced in workshops after the artisan had created the mould. Quality bronze items could be mass produced in Shang, China. Other craft work. The use of jade for the creation of precious carved objects in China predates the Shang dynasty. The Shang would create many things out of jade, such was their passion for it. It has even been said that the Chinese regarded jade in the same high regard that other ancient cultures regarded gold. Jewellery and clothing accessories were made as well as trinkets and ornaments. In fact, you would be looking for jade artefacts among the grave goods if you wanted to find the highest ranking members of society as jade was held in higher esteem than bronze. A notable object worth mentioning is the bee disc. Bee discs are flat circular creations made from jade and often the nephrite form of jade. The bee disc has a small hole in the middle but we have no idea what the practical purpose of this object is. Such is the quality of workmanship on these simple little objects that we believe that the best artisans created them, especially as nephrite is not the easiest material to work. Once again, we more often see these mysterious little objects buried alongside the more important members of society, so they must have had some spiritual importance. It has been suggested that the bee discs may have a cosmological connection, and this wouldn't be unreasonable, as we do know that there was evidence of interest in the objects of the sky in these early cultures. But this is just pure speculation. Tombs and Burials Zhengjing Xiang is a Chinese archaeologist born in 1929. Referred to as the First Lady of Chinese Archaeology, she made a famous discovery in 1976 at a site within the territories of Anyang City. The site is believed to be the last capital city of the Shang Dynasty and one that we mentioned earlier called Yin. One of the most important discoveries here was of a Shang tomb and one that has been named the Tomb of Lady Fu 
Hao. We know that it is Lady Fu Hao's tomb due to the inscribed artefacts uncovered within the recess. The amount of grave goods within the Shang graves are not as extensive as some of the Mesopotamian and Egyptian graves, but it is still considerable and it is still a comparable cultural behaviour, which is also interesting to discuss. Nonetheless, the amount of artefacts number into the hundreds and the main materials used were bronze, jade and bone, as well as stone and ceramics. The skeletons of six dogs and 16 humans were also found at the tomb, which point towards sacrifice. So this tomb is not unlike the Sumerian tomb of Queen Puabi from a thousand years previous. So once again we see cultural similarities in behaviour. It is also here that we see evidence of cowrie shells. Cowrie shells play a very important role in human history. The binomial name of the species gives away its purpose. Monetaria moneta. The cowrie shell was well known to represent one of the earliest forms of Chinese currency. It was not just used in China, but it was used in other countries as well. Almost 7,000 of these cowrie shells were found in Lady Fu Hao's tomb. Lady Fu Hao is the wife of the Shang king called Wu Ding. Wu Ding is the first monarch whose name is mentioned on contemporary oracle bones, so this links up to the later traditional stories. There are other examples of ceremonial burials that are considerable, such as the chariot burials in which a very important individual was buried alongside his chariot and his charioteers and his chariot's horses. So we can see strong links to Mesopotamian burial traditions and also the presence of chariots, something that we strongly associated with the Hittites and the Hyksos who invaded Egypt and subsequently provided the concept of chariotry to the Egyptians in turn. Chariotry had become widespread by the second half of the second millennium BCE. Ritual So we mentioned the oracle bones as the contemporary reference to the Shang King Wu Ding and we have also mentioned these oracle bones as being one of the earliest sources of Chinese writing, something we looked at in depth during episode 21. The oracle bones that have survived the centuries of time since their creation also tell us about contemporary life during the Shang dynasty, and not least of all, the existence of Wu Ding himself. During the 19th century, these oracle bones were traded as dragon bones, when they were more likely to be the shoulder blades of cattle. The oracle bones often had future predictions written on them and they would be subjected to heat either by being cast onto flames or by having heated bronze pressed against it. The resultant reaction of the bone would tell the person whether the prediction may come true or not. Maybe the bone would crack and this crack would represent a spiritual response. The beautifully created bronze vessels, which we have already described, 
must have been used for ceremonial purposes. One source states that the ritual vessels were used in great banquets which took place in honour of the great ancestors who could assume a spiritual role in the afterlife, which is not unlike Egyptian worship for example, where great leaders may become deified in death. Some sources state that ceremonial human sacrifices were as relevant in China as anywhere else that we have already discussed. Going back to the excavations and discoveries in the area of Anyang City and it is believed that regular mass human sacrifice took place and typically it would be young males who would be sacrificed. These mass sacrifices could go from dozens at one time to hundreds. Scientists have studied the bones of the victims from these burial pits and they have discovered that the sacrificed individuals were not local people. So this could point us towards the victims being captured individuals from another tribe who were initially conscribed to slavery before being offered for the ancestors' pleasure. Military The Shang dynasty appeared to become larger and more successful as the decades rolled by, and the capital city would change frequently. We know that there were plenty of barbarians in the surrounding lands who were always ready to conduct raids on Shang settlements. Likewise, the Shang would conduct expeditions around their peripheries to influence local landowners to pay tribute to the central power, either through agricultural yield or slaves. However, if anyone felt like messing with the Shang, then they would find themselves up against a formidable military force, often led by the king himself. Excavations reveal many weapons, and let's not forget the chariot burials that we mentioned earlier. We mentioned last week that it was Tang who defeated the last ruler of the Xia dynasty and established the new Shang dynasty. So this demonstrates military superiority, but we must be careful due to the fact that the earliest written confirmation of this story was written over a thousand years later, so its validity can be questioned. Archaeology and contemporary writings certainly emphasise the might of the Shang military. Initially, it would have to win the loyalty of the local tribes and landowners to establish a solid heartland. Later on in the dynasty's existence, the Shang would be able to look beyond their boundaries at the spoils of neighbouring lands. Their success would mean that their cities would become bigger and better over the centuries of their dominance. If we return to the story of the Shang King, Wu Ding, and his consort, Lady Fu Hao, we can discover more about the military success of the Shang. The bronze objects discovered in the famous tomb of Lady Fu Hao have inscribed tales of campaigns against the Chang tribes. We also have learned that Wu Ding campaigned against the Guifang and the Tufang, 
these campaigns would see Shang armies of thousands, maybe over 20,000 in the most ambitious cases. At some point, however, it seems that the Shang dynasty's luck ran out. And to explore that story, we must return to Anyang City and take a closer look at the site which was believed to be the last capital city of the Shang dynasty, and that place which is called Yin. Yin. The archaeological site at Yin demonstrates four main layers of occupation dating from around 1300 BCE through to around 1050 BCE. We have been fortunate enough to discover oracle bones which can act as a contemporary source so that we don't need to rely solely on the traditional stories from a much later date. Excavations demonstrate that Shang influence extended to their greatest extent by stretching all the way down the Yellow River to the coastal lands. It is possible that the Shang culture reached the lands of the lower Liao River to the north and the lands of the upper Yangtze River to the south. So it really does seem that the lands of China had not seen such widespread cultural influence previously. The days of Wu Ding and Lady Fu Hao seem to be the glory years of the Shang Dynasty's time at their capital city of Yin. If Wu Ding was a strong and dedicated monarch, then it appears that King Zhou of Shang was not. King Zhou of Shang was the last king of the Shang dynasty, and it was said that he was more interested in alcohol, womanizing, and gambling than leading his kingdom. However, as we are all aware, history is written by the winners, and this analysis of the character of King Zhou of Shang may be propaganda by his successors. The culmination of events would be at the Battle of Muye in 1046 BCE. We know that it was fought between the Shang dynasty, led by their king Zhou of Shang, and the opposition, the Zhou. Now, we have to be very careful here, and that is because the Chinese language has a different style about it than the English language. The Chinese language relies on the tone of words to distinguish them from each other, which is unlike the English language. I'll admit that I don't have any knowledge of Chinese pronunciation, so I'll need to be careful here. The king's name, Zhou, and the opponent's name, Zhou, are spelt the same when written in Latin script, but the Chinese tone is different. I will call the king Zhou with a double vowel sound to distinguish it from the Zhou opponents, whose name I will pronounce with a short vowel. The Zhou were led by their own king called Wu. So we have King Zhou of Shang defending his kingdom from King Wu of Zhou. 
the Joe Kingdom emanated from the Wei River, which is the largest tributary river of the Yellow River to the west of the Shang heartlands. We really only have the historical records to go by when telling the story of the Battle of Muye, which took place just south of the Shang capital at Yin. The historical record claims that Wu of Zhou waited for the word of the heavens before launching the campaign to overthrow the Shang. The records tell us that a military force of around 50,000 headed east down the river to take on the Shang. The historical record states that the Shang had an army of 700,000 men. Although many of them deserted the Shang cause or defected to the Zhou side. Modern historians doubt the vast number for the Shang army though and prefer to speculate that their force was probably no more than 70,000 strong. The battle proved to be a disaster for the Shang forces with reports of desertions and defections and those soldiers who remained loyal to the Shang cause are mentioned as being slaughtered. King Zhou of Shang had to flee the battlefield and head back to his impressive palace complex back in Yin. When he arrived at his palace, he surrounded himself with all of his precious possessions and set fire to the palace in a suicidal act. This action was to be the death of King Zhou and the death of the 700 year Shang dynasty. King Wu of Zhou believed that his success was symbolic of the mandate of heaven selecting him to be the new monarch of the Riverlands and therefore ushering in the new Zhou dynasty. A new capital was established and Jin was abandoned. In fact, two capital cities were established, an eastern one and a western one. These would be the capitals of the new Zhou dynasty. We will pick up this story when we talk about the warring states of China in volume 3. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. So as ever, we round off the episode with a look round at what's been going on this week in the world of the History of the World podcast. One thing that we've uh, found out is uh, thanks to the work of Nick Barksdale, who has created the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages channel on YouTube, who's kindly created four videos of uh, four of my individual podcasts. And... The latest one that he did was uh, to recreate the religions of ancient Canaan and Phoenicia. And as ever, whenever you talk about religion, there is a lot of deep feelings, as I think I've mentioned previously, related to them. And this this video has got 1.2 thousand likes and 66,000 listens, and it's going up all the time. 
So it's by far the most popular. It's even more popular than the late Bronze Age Collapse, which was incredibly popular too. So amazing. And, uh, you know, as ever, there's always going to be contention. There's like multiple comments underneath. There's like sort of almost 500 comments. And not all of them are complimentary about the production. However, look, I mean, that was the results of my study. And to anyone that, you know, has got, um, is sort of offended by any of it, look, you know, make your own mind up. I'm not telling you what to think. It's something that is presented through my study. And, uh, you know, you should uh, embrace all the information that you know and formulate your own opinion. That's all I've ever said to anybody. So just listen to it, enjoy it, or, you know, if you don't like it, just switch it off. No problem. But, yes, very, very popular video, and uh, it's worth going and having a look, even if it's just to read the comments. Now, as ever, if you want to support the podcast, you can rate and review it wherever you listen to the podcast. That's always a huge help. It, it attracts more exposure for the podcast. So the more ratings it gets, the higher up the charts it goes in its chosen um, podcast platform. And therefore, more people will be able to find it. It will come up in search engines a lot quicker and a lot more apparent. And uh, another way to support the podcast is to make a financial donation, which is always helpful because it means I can buy much more literature and I can fund the online services that the History of the World podcast presents for your entertainment. And I'm pleased to announce a new History of the World podcast patron whose name is Matt Hayden. So, Matt Hayden, thanks very much. You are now a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And uh, thank you so much for helping the podcast to grow and prosper. Thank you and welcome aboard. Now, if you want to become a, a member of the History of the World Illuminati, then all you need to do is go to the Patreon page and make any kind of financial contribution. It doesn't matter if it's a small contribution. We have people contributing as little as $1 a month and it all adds up and it enables us to help to continue to present quality podcasts. Now, um, if you want to sign up, by all means, you can at the Patreon page, which can be found at the History of the World podcast website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. And uh, you can qualify for rewards um, if you accumulate uh, a total of contributions. So month by month, you'll add more and more to the pot of contributions. And as that pot gets bigger, you will qualify for awards. And already we've got people who have qualified for the gift packs, which will be sent out uh, in the post as soon as they're gathered together, which I would imagine will be over the course of the next couple of months. So I'll be getting in touch with all those that have qualified and distributing them out so something to look forward to for them people but uh, it can also be something to look forward to for you if you're kind enough to get involved now i must give out a big thank you to Gemma from sydney in australia who was kind enough to plug the history of the world podcast on her very very popular instagram account um and uh, she's actually just put out a couple of advertisements basically saying how great the podcast is and uh, hopefully some of her followers 
we'll have uh, we'll have tried the podcast for the first time, which is uh, rather exciting. So we owe Gemma a big thank you for that uh, very very kind gesture, and uh, I know that she's looking forward to the next instalment of the podcast. And here it is, and she got a big fat thank you in with the deal. So thank you again, Gemma. And I'd also like to say a big congratulations to Joel McKinnon, who's a long-time fan of the podcast, the History of the World podcast. And uh, he is, uh, or was, certainly the lead singer of Jupiter Sheep, who uh, had um, a healthy obsession with the Thutmosid um, pharaohs of, of Egypt and uh, all of their escapades into the Levantine land, certainly writing songs about it even. And uh, Joel himself has landed himself a very, very important job. So we wish him very many congratulations and, and much success. Uh, we received a review on Podcast Republic, which I've never seen before. So that's great to see uh, our first review on there. Uh, five stars uh, from Rick, uh, who's put great podcast for an overview survey of world history. I like the 30-minute chunks for my commute. Well, I've blown that this week, and I've gone well over that. But yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think it's wise to try and stick to the game plan and not overrun by too much. So that's always nice sort of a, uh, expectation of a 30, 40, you know, no more than 50 minutes, hopefully. But thanks so much for the review, Rick. So that just leaves me time to go over the Apple podcast reviews for the last month. So I always enjoy this. You never quite know what you're going to get. Um, firstly, we've got Truck Driving Nerd from the United States of America, who's put great work. I've at least tried every ancient history podcast I can find, and this is one of the best. Starting the narrative in prehistory and working through from there is brilliant, and I look forward to taking the trip along with you. Uh, the next one is from Paul Fried Lieb from Australia. He's put awesome. If you want to know how we all came to be and why the world is like it is today, this is the podcast for you. Chris Hasler delivers this uh, so well love it thank you so much thank you for that one next we've got uh, horrible honky 843 from the united states who's put great podcast probably the best historical podcast i've heard can't wait till you get to greco persian wars and greco roman wars there's going to be a lot of that and i think um we can expect to hear a lot of those during 2020 I think we're going to be a rife with those kind of stories so um, yes you will get your fill of that I'm sure uh, horrible honky 843 whoever whoever you may be thank you um, next we've got Jacob Curry from the United States of America binge worthy podcast I've been listening for about three months and I'm already nearly caught up the pacing and the information of the podcast are excellently balanced for me as well the presenter speaks in a way that makes it easy to understand while driving or multitasking. That's something I've never, ever been able to do that, multitasking, never. Um, I found the history of hominids to be the topic in which I knew the least going into this, and I feel like I've gained not only a lot of knowledge, but the podcast leaves a lot of room for your own thoughts on some of the historically fuzzy topics. It's a refreshing thing to give information and give the listener topics to think on. 
easy five star rating keep up the good work a very kind very kind review there thank you and then finally from uh, ZZZZZ or uh, well from the United States so it's probably ZZZZZ um, they put Chris manages to treat very complex topics in an impressively organised clear even handed and professional way it is also presented in an entertaining and approachable way the regular summary sections and episodes are really helpful the podcast tackles quite broad subjects but seems willing to go into each one methodically so it seems like it could potentially go on almost forever. I love history podcasts and this is a great way to get context for a range of topics you might want to explore further. Thank you very much for all of those podcasts, all very kindly uh, put forward and uh, I'm happy to read them out in that uh, gratuitous self-promoting fashion that I was accused of by some YouTube um, reviewer uh, not so long ago so I'm more than happy listen you know you're kind enough to write the review I'm more than happy to read it out so thank you to each and every one of you well the podcast is now attracting huge numbers of listeners it's just going up all the time I can't really get over how 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 much the is accelerating and I think it's all thanks to the subscriptions and reviews and uh, ratings that people give the podcast I really do think it makes a difference the exposure uh, is the key to it to the podcast success this week alone this last week alone we've had 10,000 individual listens and I've never seen that before by the time we release next week's podcast we'll have gone through the 200,000 all-time barrier and, and it took the better part of 11 months to get through the first 100,000 and now in just over three months we've we've got the second 100,000 so just incredible, just unbelievable from my perspective and I'm, I'm so thrilled and grateful to everybody. Um, next week, talking about next week, we're going to... Well, I can't hold it off any longer, to be quite honest with you. I've, I've been trying to look for excuses to stall, but uh, why, why should I look? Next week, we're going to the Americas. We're going to be visiting Mesoamerica, and we're going to be doing a, a brief little summary um, during the early part of next week's episode. Hope, hopefully, will lead us into the story of the Olmecs. So that's what there is coming up next week to look forward to. But for this week... That's it. We've uh, we've done it all, and uh, now time to sign off. I hope you have a wonderful week, everybody, and until next week, cheerio. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms, so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.